This is the LAW Podcast Series with Peter Gowers, the podcast to connect LAW members and have some fun talking about their personal and professional lives. Hello and welcome. This is the LAW Podcast Series. My name is Peter Gowers. On this episode of the podcast, we're heading to a city in my home country in Australia and to Sydney. And we'll be speaking to Ross Koffel, the uh, Managing Director and Owner of Koffel's Barristers and Solicitors, and also uh, obviously the home of next year's AGM for Lawyers Associated Worldwide. So we'll drill down on that a little bit as well. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's it's poignant that we get you on. As I said uh, at the top there, uh, next year Sydney will be hosting, uh, well, the annual general meeting for LAW will be in Sydney, and uh, obviously that's your hometown. So we, uh, towards the end of this podcast, we'll learn a few things about your town and some bits and pieces that members may not know and uh, some places they might be able to go and check out uh, based on your recommendations. I'm happy to give some helpful hints. Look, let's go back to the start and um, talk about you're obviously in Sydney for this podcast, but where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in Australia. Um, my family immigrated uh, to Australia, and and I'm a first-generation Australian. And in Sydney you were born? Yes, I was. Okay. So um, for those who are familiar with Sydney and with Australia, can you talk a bit about which areas in, in Sydney you sort of grew up and spent your time in? Oh, I I grew up on the uh, North Shore uh, of Sydney, uh, and went to the school. Uh, went to school on the Upper North Shore. Uh, I went to university uh, in the city at uh, Sydney University Law School, um, and uh, I've uh, spent all of my time uh, uh, living in Sydney in the suburbs and. Uh, uh, um, some of it uh, closer to town than others, but um, always uh, part of the CBD. And uh, from my understanding, uh, those from the North Shore uh, of Sydney never seem to stray too far from that area. Is that correct? Well, there's the traditional divide between East and West. Um, my family originally lived in the East and then moved to the Lower North Shore uh, where I grew up, um, uh, and so um, it's true that people don't normally move from one to another, but that's just really a question of where your immediate family live and where you want to be and to be close to them, I think. Yeah, and has it uh, dictated the sporting teams that you support? Um, oh, yes. Um, I, I'm not a... Um, a mad uh, um, rugby league fan, but I uh, enjoy rugby union, having played rugby union at school. And uh, obviously, uh, like all Australians, follow the cricket. 
Um, but uh, I was a keen tennis player and um, and later in life uh, uh, a keen equestrian. Wow. Okay. So the the next question is in related in relation to uh, your professional side and. I know in in researching this podcast and discussing with you prior that um, your path to uh, the legal industry is is certainly uh, less common than those that I've spoken with so far. So um, we'll start with what inspired you to pursue a career in the law and we'll sort of then drill down on on how you got there. Um, After I left school, I... um, um, thought that it would be um, interesting to be a lawyer. Um, uh, originally, my father was uh, a journalist and was the legal reporter on one of our national newspapers. And so I always grew up with a, an interest in the law. And um, uh, my wife's uh, sorry, my um, uh, mother's um, brother was a uh, a Supreme Court judge, um, and so I had some background in in the law, and so I originally trained um, uh, as an article clerk, as we then had it in Sydney, um, which is the old the old fashioned English. Uh, method of law training so you enrolled at university and then you became indentured um, and to a master solicitor and signed in effect like an apprenticeship uh, which at the time was controlled by the supreme court and then you work as an article clerk uh, while you attend to your studies Um, i went to sydney university which was the only University uh, for Law in New South Wales at the time, and law school was in Phillips Street, which was the heart of the legal precinct. And you went to lectures early in the morning. You attended the office during the day. Uh, you had a seminar at lunch. You went back to the office in the afternoon, and then you had lectures again in the afternoon. Um, and so I worked uh, as a lawyer, training originally in finance and insolvency. Um, but I had, since the age of 18, been uh, involved and had been a director of a family business, which was involved in commercial film production and advertising. And so in addition to an artic- being an article clerk, I worked in the family business in the evenings while I was at law school from the age of about 18. Um, That's the business that I had grown up with um, and my father had started that business in the late 1930s. Um, And then after a short period um, working as a young lawyer, um, I took over control um, of the family business when my father became ill and became the chairman and uh, CEO at aged 
26. Um, and it was a, a business which operated from Perth to Papiete, from Launceston to Ley. So it covered the whole of the Pacific. And, uh, and, I, and I worked in that business uh, most of my working life. Uh, I maintained uh, my practicing certificate and attended uh, continuing legal education seminars. And I was probably the first solicitor in advertising in Australia. At the time, that was a bit novel. Um, it later became fashionable. Um, and I, after um, uh, I sold that business and it became part of a uh, public company uh, owned offshore, uh, I remained as uh, an executive chairman of their operations and then eventually retired and spent my time riding my horse and competing and did a, a legal job for a friend and I did another legal job and I ended up with hmm. a legal practice by default <laughs> uh, and now have uh, lawyers filling two floors in a CBD building in the city. Wow. So an unusual, an unusual journey. But yeah. My attitude towards law is um, very much different than my colleagues in the sense of one, I've run a very large business. Uh, two, it was a creative business and I was a creative person. And therefore, taking those skills towards being a lawyer caused me to look at things differently. Um, traditionally, um, lawyers think of my work as outside the square, if I can put it that way. Mm. Um, and therefore, I see things differently. Um, I think of creative solutions because the basis of our firm has always been um, cross-border um, transactions. And so when I went back into business, um, I had various contacts um, in the film industry around the world because I had been a director of the commercial part of the Cannes Film Festival which is now referred to as the Golden Lions for about 15 years. And so I used those contacts to start um, um, an international sort of network for carrying out work. Um, and then in 1994, um, I joined LAW and there were a uh, few members. I was member 20-something, I think, when I joined. Hmm. So it was a very different organisation to the organisation that it is today. Yeah. So that's a, a, a small history of my work background. So 26 years old, um, thrust into, uh, well, the, the director's chair, so to speak, of... Uh, 
a film production company that had global reach um, with obviously your legal training up to that point. How did your legal training help you with well, that uh, type of business? I, I, the combination of my training in doing finance work and uh, being a commercial lawyer uh, and having, in effect, done an apprenticeship um, at my father's knee from a, a young age helped me to take over. Um, when I took over, we had about um, eight officers and 300 employees. So it was a significant um, business to run uh, and one which I enjoyed uh, very much. Is there any um, which you can talk about? Are there any uh, uh, films or commercials that that people may know that you're involved with? Uh, we made commercials. the The way in which it worked was that the commercial or the script was prepared by the advertising agency, and we simply um, um, prepared. We made the commercial. Um, according to what was required by the client and the ad agency. And so we had done, in the early days, advertisements for Vegemite and Aeroplane Jelly, um, um, for um, a company called Reckitt and Coleman with a, uh, a brand name of Mortine. Oh. Uh, any product that you can think of, we made commercials for. Because when the business started in the 30s, it was making only radio commercials because there was of no And then eventually my father um, uh, went into making um, commercials for cinema. And then when television came, at the time that we had the Olympics, um, uh, uh, we start, we carried out um, uh, making commercials for television. So any iconic name that you can think of, we made commercials. Um, wow. So that's the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. You, you were doing correct. things way, way back I, as early as then. Correct. Wow. And uh, as as we discussed previously, um, my my background um, stems to commercial radio, and uh, I'm wondering whether you, there's any uh, cameos you can tell us about that that you're in, Ross. I know in every production studio, someone always says, "Oh, I need someone to make a yelling noise or a clapping noise or a Yahoo or and any ads you've been in that we uh, should know about." Um, no, I I um, I do recall um, um, being made as an extra in in various commercials, and I was very young, obviously, and didn't have a great awareness of it, except when watching a historic show on um, advertising in Australia. I'm sitting at home with my family and watching. Um, uh, a commercial for um, uh, a company called Chrysler um, uh, Radio uh, and uh, Record Player. 
and um, it was obviously a commercial filmed in the sunroom um, of my family home and uh, there I was sitting on the couch um, and I don't think I had ever seen it before um, and I was quite startled. Um, however, um, uh, it was really a question of my involvement was the business side of running it yeah. uh, and making sure that it was a um, a, a viable business. Um, it's not an easy business, um, the film industry generally, and because we were otherwise involved in the promotion of movies, mm. um, therefore I had a fair amount of involvement with um, uh, various uh, film houses uh, with the release of their movies. Um, I do recall my father had um, the advertising rights at a cinema at uh, King's Cross um, and because um, it was the rights were going to be suspended because they were going to make um, uh, a play at the at this cinema um, uh, my father then had to promote the the live show and have a magazine and and um, I can only tell you that I remember that that was Jesus Christ Superstar, oh, um, wow. um, which was uh, run in an old metro theatre called the Minerva in um, King's Cross. Um, Gee, that's a big, big time uh, production. And I remember um, seeing uh, several musical productions uh, around Melbourne and Sydney back in the day uh, where they did use the old cinemas to do that. I guess it sort of lends itself to that production. That was a cinema which was owned by uh, MGM and had otherwise been a stage theatre. It's been dark, as they say, for some years and there's now a proposal to rebuild it into a... Um, live theatre once again in Sydney, mm. which were, it's in Kellett Street in Fox uh, Point. Be nice uh, to resurrect an old old theatre like that. It would be. Hey, Ross, um, just before you referred to uh, Chrysler record players, I, I might, for our younger members, just get you to explain what a record player is. Well, it, it was a... <laughs> Uh, uh, um, a 45 or a, 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 or an LP long playing record, um, which was um, uh, played on a turntable uh, with a stylus, um, and uh, um, for for the purists, it's still the best form of um, reproduction. Uh, and there's been somewhat of a uh, resurgence uh, in Australia and no doubt around the world with these old-fashioned uh, record players. Um, I do recall that um, at cinemas, uh, when they were playing advertising, um, the audio was produced uh, on an acetate uh, disc, which was cut uh, in our studio, and it was 
uh, used for the background to the advertising at the cinema. Uh, and they were um, um, acetate, well, acetate records were of, of limited duration in use and could only be used maybe a hundred times before they wore out. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting time. Um, obviously, uh, that was later replaced with um, uh, tape and later with film. Yeah, it's um, it's something that, you know, I'm acutely aware of in terms of audio quality, um, and you're absolutely right. Um, the the quality of a of a um, vinyl record uh, with a decent stylus is, regardless of how easy it is these days to download your digital music, uh, they just don't compare in terms of their overall sound quality. Uh, no, they don't. Um, uh, but nevertheless, um, it's obviously not as easy and not as convenient as as getting um, music, um, you know, on the web, on Spotify or whatever. So yeah. it just makes it very easy. So uh, the convenience has taken over from the edge of uh, or the desire of, of the ultimate quality, I think. Yeah, correct. And, and I think also um, that, you know, in many cases you don't know what you're missing out on. So if you've never heard it, then you can't compare it. But... Those of us lucky enough to sort of go through that era of of that high quality audio pre digital, uh, you know, can appreciate the the difference. Yes, indeed. Um, I was very much involved in that um, when we were making uh, um, uh, commercials at our studio because um, all of the music had to be created and mixed. Um, and long before there were uh, cheap mixing devices that are available and all of those way in which the music was prepared and mixed had to be done in a studio with material with mixing devices that was normally built um, bespoke for the actual studio itself mm. so i remember all of our mixing uh, consoles had all been made uh, uh, specifically for our studio you know, I remember um, mixing my first 30-second commercial, which took about seven hours to produce because, of course, the way the, the tape recorded back then, you had to record line and line and over and over and, and the jingle all separately and, and go back and forth, back and forth. It was an amazing process. Yeah, um, uh, it's a long way uh, from what I do now as a lawyer. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, let's get into that because um, I, I think, as you said, your journey from what you've done uh, to what you do now um, came almost by accident, you'd say, although you had the training, you did a, a job for a friend and then another job for a friend. And as you say, now you're in a, uh, you've got two floors in, in Sydney uh, with many lawyers and solicitors doing different things. So let, let's talk about your firm and and which areas of practice um, you work mostly in as a firm? Um, probably my personal involvement um, is in 
uh, M&A or cross-border transactions. Um, I'm often uh, a lead in a negotiation for, a, for an M&A deal. Um, most of my time, apart from that, is spent supervising the work of the firm, which obviously is commercial transactions, um, our mergers and acquisitions, and then we have a commercial litigation department and we run litigation both in Australia and offshore. Um, we have an insolvency practice uh, as well as family law, wills and estates, um, real property mainly for clients, sports, sports law mainly equestrian and motorsport and personal injury uh, mainly institutional sexual abuse. And so I supervise uh, the firm and all of the various areas so that I'm not uh, physically working on files, but I'm often attending client meetings and helping with the tactics of the various cases which we are running in every state of, and territory of Australia. And what's the, um, if you can say, the, the biggest part of uh, the practice to, to the business? Um, probably our, the most important part is our commercial activity, um, even though each of the other areas is significant and there's a quite a lot of um, personal injury litigation uh, as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a great mix. Mm. And um, if the economy is bad, the M&A is down and the insolvency is up um, and uh, maybe um, that's what we're going to see in the next two years around the world. Who knows? Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, insolvency of recent has been low uh, and probably the lowest I recall it being since I originally trained as a lawyer uh, in the 1960s. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia certainly, and and a lot of the the Western countries, uh, and obviously China as well, have been through an amazing run over what seems like decades. Uh, there was that uh, time in two thousand and eight, which we can all sort of recall was a little dicey. But it seems that um, the world forgot about that, and uh, given what we've just been through over the last couple of years, and business environment it it would seem that uh insolvency is you'd have to think there's an upside to insolvency the, the way it sits currently yes indeed i mean there was a downturn a serious world downturn i think in 91 92 um and that was probably the worst time um uh, that i recall um and hopefully it won't return to that. Yeah. So um, you mentioned earlier you uh, involved in um, the legal practice in the sports field as well, and you mentioned equestrian because that's obviously a personal interest. What What do you do in the motorsport area? Um, mainly um, uh, um, insurance issues for clubs, um, sponsorship, driver's contracts. Uh, we're now talking about uh, um, 
NFTs uh, in terms of sports law and uh, in terms of uh, identities in uh, motor racing. Mm -hmm. uh, I act for uh, a number of clubs for various marks, including Porsche and Lamborghini, and um, I represent the, the Porsche Club on Motorsport Australia, and I'm a delegate uh, in New South Wales to the overall administration body, and that's one of my one of my hobbies. Right. I used to race at club level, um, so I've got some knowledge of it. I was just an amateur owner, if I can put it that way. Um, um, so that's how we became involved in doing um, both equestrian law because I was an event rider um, and uh, the rest of the family rode. My daughter jumped um, and my wife rode dressage and trained and my son uh, managed to do a little of everything. So it was a family pursuit. Um, and when we stopped competing, um, we were still approached by people involved in the sport who knew that we had a knowledge of it. And so mm -hmm. we probably have the largest equestrian legal practice in Australia, uh, both in racing and performance horses. Okay. Uh, and we do it in every state of Australia. Um, and I guess the same applies to motorsport. Um, and we're now seeing some international um, activity in motorsport with the movement of drivers and sponsorship. So um, that, that's become part of our practice. It's a big business these days, isn't it? You, you referred to NFTs. So um, I imagine that's a bit of a minefield with um, the fact that anybody can create an NFT and, you know, trying to keep the uh, the the rights to someone's image or likeness would be a tough time. Uh, indeed. Um, however, I see it as an emerging area um, and something which we've had to learn about as it's uh, come on the scene. Yeah. Uh, but I find it interesting and it's a good marketing tool. Um, in terms of our work, we're um, pursuing. Um, uh, 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 well, we're pursuing our sort of um, CSR-type uh, ambitions and we're particularly active in ESG, um, which, if you're not familiar with, is environmental, social and governance and has become a standard um, and a non-litigated, um, uh, uh, sorry, in terms of it's not an enforceable standard at this stage, but it will become that way. I mean, some of the environmental standards are obviously um, uh, subject to legislation, but we see a great um, benefit in our practice growing in ESG. Um, and uh, that added to uh, some of our human rights type uh, litigation has been a focus of the firm. Um, but I see that going forward, um, it will be very important 
or companies to have an, an ESG. Um, for example, a, a part of the social uh, aspect of that has been um, audits on companies to ensure that when they are subcontracting manufacturing, particularly to uh, third world countries, that the um, staff of the subcontractor are correctly paid um, and um, they are not involved uh, in preying on the uh, people in these countries to work at substandard conditions. Um, and so um, both my children who are in the firm uh, are um, CSR auditors uh, and have carried out work in that regard. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's um, one of those emerging fields, isn't it? I, I believe so, and I think it will become more and more important. And with um, uh, funds for ethical investment, um, all of these standards will become very important. And if you don't have an ESG policy, then you're not likely to get an investment from an ethical fund, which is particularly uh, pushed by retirees around the world. Mm. So an interesting development in terms of how we think our commercial practice will expand. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, with, with your various areas of law that the firm works in, um, you, you mentioned there was a link previously with, with um, uh, your former career. But did those areas come uh, just naturally by default, or were they some of them were areas that you chose to to work within? I think there there areas where we just chose to work in. Um, there was a need, um, and that's how we did it. That's how we became involved. So um, you obviously have touched on your equestrian and your motorsport, but um, Sydney's a well-known city globally, um, hosting the Olympics back in 2000, and everybody knows the Opera House, and uh, they tend to know the bridge, the Harbour Bridge there. Um, what are your personal hobbies outside of, of the legal field? And Well, pro probably uh, motorsport, and secondly, um, I'm a trustee of the Combined Services Return Servicemen, Servicemen's League. Uh, club in Sydney, which is um, for people who are not in Australia, uh, um, uh, an association, a charity that relates to looking after uh, soldiers um, who have returned from from both uh, Army, Navy, and uh, Air Force, and looking after their needs. And um, we have a. Um, a club uh, club premises in the CBD of Sydney, and I'm involved um, as a trustee. That building being in my name, um, uh, together with my fellow trustees, uh, in developing that business, that building into a high rise, and so it's taking a lot of my after hours activity in working on the development of that building. And we are going to provide a drop-in centre for soldiers who have returned 
from overseas service to provide all of the facilities that they may require and we're trying to get all of the providers under the one roof in the building that we are building and so that that we we have in in australia we have one soldier committing ex-soldier committing suicide every week um and it is a very serious problem Mm. and um i'd be very proud to try to get this center together up and running for the benefit of the returned servicemen Mm. so that's been a passion of mine in the last uh, 12 months and will occupy my time heavily for the next few years well it's a a much needed and and wonderful initiative is that um due to a personal interest ross or a family interest that got you involved in that no um i was a member of the reserve um for six years at the time of vietnam and so um i had an interest um in the reserve and have always had that interest and it came out of that interest um, that uh, I became involved. Could you just explain um, what being a member of the reserve means? Uh, I'm not sure if it would be the same for some of our overseas uh, members well, as well. Well, at, at the time, um, I was a member. Um, I was remembering I was 18 when I joined and at university um, we would have we would attend a parade night once uh, a week and we would have um, some sort of exercise in some form uh, every month, so every fourth week, basically. Um, And I was a member of the Sydney University Regiment, which later became um, uh, uh, an officer training school and uh, proudly where my son also went um and he then went on to officer training school at duntroon and graduated uh, as an officer in the infantry mm. um, um and um uh, did that um while he was also at university um, and being a member of the reserve um, essentially means if if the defence force required you to do so, then you could be called up for some sort of active duty. Absolutely. You're on call to be called up. Um, uh, fortunately, uh, Vietnam came to an end um, while I was still at university and I uh, didn't uh, go to Vietnam, as did some of my uh schoolmates from the school um that was a a very difficult time in mm. in in world affairs and uh in in australian uh politics because we had a draft at the time and there was a compulsory lottery and um uh days were chosen and if your date was chosen as a birth date you were called up and you could be sent to vietnam Mm, yeah. So that that conscription was compulsory. Yeah, and as you say, it was um, very much uh, controversial at the time. Yeah, very, very much. 
Um, however, um, through my knowledge of doing work with uh, people in our um, personal injury department and my um, uh, association with the psychiatrists and the treatment, I had some knowledge which encouraged me to uh, want to assist in the building of the drop-in centre for the return servicemen. Mm. Look, it is a um, anything that can be done to assist is uh, much needed. Um, I have friends who've been uh, in active service, and uh, you know, we we very much are a culture that appreciates everything that um, active service men and women do uh, for our country and the other countries that that they uh, assist to defend, and it's a very very noble. Um, profession for those that do it yeah, yeah i agree it's a great sacrifice and therefore i think they need to be looked after meaning mm. the vietnam uh vets as they were referred to were treated generally very badly because of yeah. the medical situation in australia about the war in vietnam and wanting to bring it to an end um and that affected greatly a lot of the vietnam vets when they returned to australia so mm. instead of returning to a hero's welcome they were uh, they returned to ridicule and hatred and yeah. that was a very sad part of our history which uh, i've never really been able to understand given the conscription element to it um i i imagine there were those that, that were already in the defence or volunteered at the time, but those that were conscripted who did what their country asked them to do, um, I just I always found it strange that they came back to, as you say, such negativity and hatred because presumably a lot of them went, uh, you know, against their will, so to speak. They went because they were required by law to do it. Yeah. Um, um, so it was a very difficult time in our history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, good luck with the centre because it's an amazing initiative. Um, let's talk a bit about Sydney. And as I said at the start of this podcast, uh, Sydney is uh, the site of next year's Lawyers Associated Worldwide AGM. And uh, I know that you've um, uh, had some things to do with assisting Laurie and her team with sites and things to do and places to go when, when the delegates are in Sydney. Um, I wondered, uh, because I guess most members will find that out naturally through the, the management team, but I wondered if we could talk about a few things that um, uh, represent your Sydney and things that delegates might be able to do in their spare time that, that they may not do as a part of the LAW gang well, it hasn't been determined all of the things that we're going to do at the conference yet, but um, one of the iconic things that you can do in Sydney is to go on a bridge climb where you can climb up onto the centre of the Harbour Bridge. Mm. Um, that is um, an initiative about a bridge climb really claim in Australia and has been copied in other parts of the world. Um, and so that's a marvellous thing to do. Um, we have a, uh, a magnificent zoo at Taronga Park in Sydney, um, where the animals are kept 
in um, very suitable surroundings compared to many zoos around the world. Um, I guess iconic things are Bondi Beach or Manly Beach. Um, they are things to go to and look at and uh, to uh, have a swim in the ocean. Um, another thing you could do would be to go down to Circular Quay in Sydney on the harbour and catch a, a Manly ferry and go to Manly, um, which is a marvellous ferry ride uh, and costs very little money, but it goes down the harbour and it's a marvellous thing to do. Um, we have a ferry service to Watson's Bay, which is close to the heads, um, where the overseas uh, vessels come in and you can catch a ferry to Watson's Bay and uh, go to the local uh, hotel or restaurant and sit in the sun under an umbrella if you wish uh, and eat fish and chips. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great thing to do. It is. Um, I guess apart from that, the, the rocks in the city is a historic part of the, uh, where the city began. Um, and there is lots of things to do, uh, 24 hours a day in the rocks. Um, it's a historic area. People still live there. Um, but there are lots of restaurants and nightclubs. Um, and so it's right next to the harbor and right next to Circular Quay. Um, we have built a new area in Sydney called Barangaroo, where there's a park and also a lot of uh, nice restaurants. Uh, the restaurants at Barangaroo are uh, heavily frequented by locals, um, but it's a great place for tourists to go. And uh, we have our infamous Crown Casino uh, in that area. Um, another thing is you could go to the Queen Victoria building, um, which is a historic building in the CBD, which has been repurposed re, uh, into a shopping centre. Um, our uh, office is only 100 metres from QVB. Um, and that's a great place to wander around, uh, have something to eat and to shop. And lastly, I suppose you could take a tour of the Opera House. That's mm. a sort of a neat thing to do. You can sign up for a tour. Um, it's a, an incredible building. It was built during my lifetime. Um, and it was a dream. Uh, it was created from sketches. There were no walk, working drawings on how to build it. <laughs> so the fact that it was built and the sails soar into the sky above our harbour is really quite a miracle. And it, you couldn't come to Sydney without going to the Opera House, is how I would say. Yeah, look, I guess, um, you know, knowing Sydney somewhat, uh, and having been to Watson's Bay myself, um, that's that's something that I guess all the Australian uh, internal tourists go and do, and everyone always talks about how wonderful that is. But if you're going to Sydney from overseas and 
you don't go to the opera house and you don't see or do something with the Harbour Bridge, then I guess you haven't really been to Sydney, have you? No, no. And um, um, I think um, it will be a very enjoyable time. We've never had um, an LAW meeting in Sydney. Um, it, it will be exciting for us to have uh, LAW members attend the city. Um, I've had a long history with LAW. I've served two terms on the executive. And in the early days, I arranged all of the earlier um, uh, meetings in Asia Pacific. So I know what it's like to organise a conference. And uh, mm. um, no doubt, uh, Laurie's working hard, has mm. plenty of suggestions. And uh, uh, at the time of this interview taking place, we're currently working on the final contract for a hotel in, for the uh, conference to be held. Yeah. Nice. And look, just to uh, alleviate anybody's fears, because I know that Australia does um, probably still enjoy that image of being pretty rough and tough. Uh, with regard to the uh, Harbour Bridge Walk, you are actually attached to the bridge at the time, right? There's no chance no, of falling yes, over. No, no. You, wear, you wear a suit and you wear a harness and the harness is attached um, to a rail it's a little bit like the harness you would have on a racing yacht whereby you can't fall overboard um, and no, you can't take anything and that will drop and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it's it's an iconic thing to do. You've got to like heights, uh, yeah, but nevertheless, uh, walking up the harbour bridge at sunset is a marvellous thing to do. Yeah, and I, I imagine the view would be like nothing else. Uh, quite amazing, quite amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Ross, just before we finish up, um, you, you've talked a few times about your connection to Lawyers Associated Worldwide, and it dates back to 1994, as you said. Love to hear um, your perspective on the evolution of LAW over those years. Well, it started off um, um, about, I think, I don't know exactly, about six years before I joined by um, a couple of people in Europe wanting to um, uh, arrange licensing arrangements between the UK and the continent um, for uh, a game, uh, an electronic game. Um, and it started with um, a number of firms that were wanting to do cross-border work. They were inherently smaller firms than they are today, um, but all of those firms at that time were involved in the cross-border work. So while the size of the member firms has grown over the years, um, those firms are general commercial firms generally, and part of that firm does hopefully cross-border work, um, but it's only a portion of that firm. And so a typical LAW member has changed very much from 
a firm that a small firm that dedicated most of its activities to the cross-border work to larger firms with, um, who were servicing their local market who had cross-border capabilities or the need for carrying out cross-border work. So that's been a very um, uh, significant change in the type of firms uh, that have uh, joined. Um, Asia-Pacific is still the um, Cinderella part of LAW uh, with less members in Asia-Pacific. Um, uh, and hopefully um, that will grow. I noticed today the eighth, the, the world population grew to eight billion and the eighth billionth person uh, was born. Um, and a great proportion of that population is in Asia. Yeah. Um, so if you look at China and India um, and Indonesia, you are looking at the powerhouse of the population of the world, which will grow, mm. and India will become the largest populous country. And I think that hopefully that will affect the membership of LAW and its ability to grow uh, in uh, Asia Pacific. You know, the organisation is well represented in Australia but not as well represented throughout Asia, and hopefully um, that will change in the years to come. Well, Ross, uh, it's been great talking to you, and I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me in talking to you and, and setting up this podcast is obviously your background with LAW having been there for such a long time. So... You know, you've really seen it evolve, and the um, I guess those sorts of people are always good to have in organisations such as LAW because with such a big member base, uh, I think it's always important to remember where you came from. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, um, things have changed. The type of law that we are now doing has changed. Um, in 1994, we weren't talking about ESG. We were <laughs> talking about, um, um, you know, images that are now going to be materialised. Um, so the law has changed greatly um, and the emphasis of law has changed. Um, and so everyone needs to move with those changes and the law that we did when we started is so much different than it is today. The only consistent part of it, I think, has been uh, the M&A uh, type transaction, which has been going on um, for hundreds of years. Mm. So, but how that is carried out and having electronic data rooms um, which never existed, the ability to do due diligence in a form that we could never do before and using the web to find information about people and targets is is something new. But the actual uh, fundamental um, M&A deal has not changed. Um, the rest of it 
I suppose, has changed immensely. Um, real estate has changed to electronic transactions. Um, family law has changed with a revolution in the way in which families are perceived with same-sex marriage uh, as part of the um, culture today in Australia. Um, so I look forward to uh, the firm going forward. I'm fortunate to have uh, two children in the firm uh, and have a, a secession plan uh, which is well underway. Um, so I'm looking forward to that because um, apart from doing that, um, as members probably know, we also run a litigation funding company uh, as part of a family enterprise. Um, and so that has been um, run separately uh, to our legal practice, but is funding legal cases uh, in Australia and possibly in the future overseas. So um, I see the future as rosy and while there may be an economic downturn, um, I see that change as beneficial in terms of lawyers' work because with the change requires clients to change their um, position and that requires legal advice. So I am hopeful that we will not see a downturn in uh, legal work uh, in the next uh, few years. Well, it sounds like you've thought about it deeply and I hope you're right. I hope so. Ross, thanks for your time on the podcast. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you indeed. It's been a pleasure. That was Ross Coffell from Coffell's Barristers and Solicitors in Sydney, the host site of the LAW AGM in 2023. We'll catch you again on the next LAW podcast series episode. You've been listening to the Lawyers Associated Worldwide podcast series with Peter Gowers, the podcast where LAW members go one-on-one -on -one to discuss their professional and personal lives. More episodes coming soon.